on today's episode, we are tackling a topic that we've wanted to tackle on the Real Talk podcast for about five seasons, but we knew we would need a little help. So yes. we've brought in the reinforcements for this episode. We are really excited to welcome our first ever guest host yeah. to the podcast. Hey, man. Dr. James Hawkins is with us today. James, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here with you. It really is. We are so excited that you're here with us. James, you have a lot of stuff that I've got to list here <laughs> because you are a busy, busy man. It's very long. James is the host of A More Excellent Way. That's a podcast on our sister station on KLRC, the KLRC Podcast Network. You're a counselor at the Joshua Center. You're an adjunct professor at John Brown University. You are a marriage and family pastor. You got a lot going on. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> Did I just remind you of like a bunch of stuff on yeah. your to-do list? Yeah, or man. I felt that in my gut. Yeah. It's a little overwhelmed now. <laughs> James also has a doctorate of philosophy, psychology and counseling from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Yeah. So we're really excited to have you here for this conversation today. We're tackling race, racism, racial reconciliation, mm -hmm. all of the above. This is a tough topic to talk about. But it's one that we've got to have a conversation about. Mm -hmm. And like I said, we've been wanting to have this conversation on Real Talk for a long time. Yeah. But if I can be very frank with our <laughs> listeners, didn't seem like a great idea for a podcast with three white people as the hosts <laughs> to have a grand discussion on race. Yeah. But just the additional surprise. We're all white. <laughs> <laughs> we never mentioned that on the show before. <laughs> oh my gosh. Surprise. This is more fun being in the studio with you all this. <laughs> We're going to have lots of fun today. Oh, yeah. Here's the other fun thing. We actually asked a number of our listeners on the Real FM Insiders group on Facebook if they had any questions, either for James or just uh, points that they wanted us to talk about on yeah. the show today. And so we're going to be bringing those into the conversation today as well. I actually want to start there with one of our questions from one of our listeners, and this comes from Morgan. And maybe this will kind of help introduce you, James, to our listening audience a little bit. Morgan asked the question, what have been some of Dr. Hawkins' experiences dealing with racism or how has racism affected you personally in your life? Well, yeah. And when I think about early experiences, it makes me think back to my great grandmother. I remember being a little kid and just always wondering, like, hey, why does Granny look white? She's so much different. Like she passes for white and I don't understand it. Like, what is mm. that? And as a little kid, my parents, you know, want to be sensitive with answering the question. And then finally, like I'm older, I'm like, look, tell me plain. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why is Granny white? And my mm. mom just like, well, baby, sometimes slave masters used to have fun with their slaves. Mm. And then comes this side of your family. Mm. So that's wow. definitely an early formative part of, of my history yeah, around sure. race. But then even if I take it into a little bit more of the modern context and working in parachurch, church world, and just seeing ways in which still being a minority can make some people uncomfortable mm -hmm. and seeing some leaders within organizations wanting to maybe allow them to hold certain beliefs or biases against me and like being willing to accommodate that mm -hmm. within the church that mm -hmm. just kind of floored me that in some ways racism or at least bias is tolerated mm. still in the American church sometimes. It's sometimes. not even tolerated, but the word you used accommodated. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's probably there's, so there's room made for it. Not necessarily fact. like an explicit vocal rule, but more just a, you'll know that if you have these ideas, yeah. you'll be accommodated yeah. there. Yeah. Mm. It's wild. For me, as we talk about this, I have a confession to make. This conversation is super intimidating to me, partly because I'm really afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm afraid I don't even know the right questions to ask. I don't even know where to start, to be perfectly honest. So I just want to throw that out there so your expectations are real low of what I'm going to say if I say something really dumb. I feel like a complete newbie 
to this conversation. I think that's so important for people to hear, though, because I feel the same way. I think so many of us feel that way. And it's so intimidating to step into a deeply uncomfortable conversation, but a conversation that's so important at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think acknowledging that we're all uncomfortable is an important place to start. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. So for me, I grew up in uh, southeast Nebraska, little farming community. And in this community, there was honestly pretty much no diversity. I would say one of my grandmothers struggled a little bit with more overt racism. Mm. It's just been something that has been not a part of my psyche. I've had the luxury of not thinking about it. Yeah. And probably not until I moved to Arkansas, came to college here. Did it start? to come more to the front of my attention. Like, oh, there's there's things going on that I have no idea about. There's realities outside of the one that I'm living. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a wake up call. One of our listeners in the Facebook group brought up the subject of colorblindness. That's something that I think about as I hear you describe your experience, Kara, because your experience is similar to mine. I grew up in a pretty homogenized area in a homogenized circle. What I grew up thinking was that colorblindness was the goal, uh, that ignoring race was somehow a good thing because that means I'm treating everyone equally, right? So obviously, as I've grown, I've realized that there are a number of problems with ignoring our diversity rather than celebrating it. But this colorblindness thing is something I think that gets brought up a lot. You hear the question constantly asked from people, why does everything have to be about race? Because Mm -hmm. if the goal is for us to be colorblind and ignore it, Mm -hmm. then every time race gets brought up in conversation, Mm -hmm. it feels very frustrating Mm -hmm. because it's a violation of what I'm striving for, which is to ignore it. Interesting. But James, I want to kind of get your take on colorblindness because I think from Kara's experience or my experience, colorblindness is kind of a luxury we could afford because we were part of the majority in the areas that we grew up in. We we didn't have to think about race. We weren't confronted with it all Mm -hmm. the time. But for a person of color, for a minority, I have to imagine that's just not the case. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the first point for me is the term race. Race really is not a biblical way of looking at it. When we think about the construct or the concept of race, it really is a social construction. It is a construct in which a people group determined who is on top and who's on bottom, Mm -hmm. who's superior, who's inferior. Mm -hmm. It was determined amongst these groups. White is right and black is inferior and subjugated. And so that's how we begin to build world empires on the backs of Africans and people of brown skin tone. But the biblical perspective that we need to take is there are ethnos or people groups or cultural groups. God has divinely chosen and created all groups in his image, every nation, tribe and tongue. God in his sovereignty created these because they manifest his glory and his goodness in all the earth. You know, a very common way of looking at this, of course, we expect birds of a feather to flock together, right? (laughs) We expect people who look alike and think alike to flock together. Mm. But what does it display about the power of God's spirit when people who are different still find this common bond and Mm. and unity Mm. in their diversity and come together? And one of the things we see in the book of Revelation that it is made very clear, people from every nation, tribe and tongue will be there. Hmm. So to try and be colorblind is to say, I don't want to see something beautiful that God made. Wow. I want to overlook it. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. I want to be fair. I get what people are trying to do Mm -hmm. because they think it's a way to heal something. But 
denial and withdrawal or ignoring does not heal things. It only allows the problem to exist and actually makes it worse Mm. because it's saying you don't want to see me and you don't want to identify with anything I've experienced. Mm. That's such a good point. You know, we very recently did a podcast episode on suffering. And one of the things that we talked a lot about during that episode was this idea of lament and pain and not skipping over that portion of the process to get to the redemption at the end. Kara talked about how when you read stories, there's always kind of a middle part of the narrative where the hero is struggling, there's pain, there's something difficult that they have to walk through. You can't have that redemption at the end without the pain and the suffering on the way there. You have to spend some time in it. I think that's got to apply to this conversation as well. Mm. Totally. When I first began to sense God lead me into talking about this and having this conversation, and particularly I come into it not as a historian, I come into it as a person who's a professional about helping people have hard conversations in order to heal. Mm. That's my framework. Mm -hmm. And so when I really think about it, I think about it from a marriage standpoint. One of the hardest things that I deal with, but it's a beautiful place to also help people, is when couples have had a betrayal or an affair. Mm. And I'm not trying to be gender stereotype, but for this example, I'll just go with one of the most common presentations. So let's say a husband has had an affair on his wife and they present into counseling. Part of why they're presenting is they want to make things better. There's been something that's happened. The relationship, things went sour and the husband made a dumb choice. He messed up. He wants to make amends. Hopefully the wife is in pain and she wants to heal. In order for that couple to heal, the first necessary step is I've got to make this space safe for her to be able to share her pain. Because if I try and go to healing and restoring their marital bond and I skip her pain, it will come back and get them later. That pain has to be dealt with. And I've seen that presentation before, but that's hard and justifiably so for the husband, why he wouldn't want to see that pain. Mm. Because especially if he's a husband that loves his wife, he looks over there and he sees her pain. He sees her sorrow. Mm. It makes him feel guilt. He feels shame and it hurts. And he's like, I don't know if that pain on her will ever go away. Mm. And I don't want to get stuck here because we won't ever be able to get back. So I just want to, I don't want you to, he'll tell her, I don't want you to feel that way. Can't we just get through this? Mm. Wow. And it makes sense that he wants to say that. Yeah. What I need to tell him is I get it. I get how this is making you feel and how this is hard. Mm -hmm. But here's the problem. If you really want this to be restored, She needs to be able to share this pain. And this is how you'll know when you can move forward. She needs to be able to look over into your eyes and see that her pain has entered your body. Mm. And when she can see that you are feeling and taking in her pain, then what her body and what her soul can begin to experience is I can kind of trust moving forward. Mm. He gets it. Mm. Wow! Not only does he get it, he feels it himself. And so now we're both sharing this pain. So now it's not just me getting over pain. Mm -hmm. We are both united in dealing with this pain and this suffering together. But it takes him having to stay there and it might not happen in one conversation. It takes time. Right. But each time he can be there and be present with her pain, Mm -hmm. it actually gets better. And actually for some couples, they'll be like, that sucked. We never want to do it again. Yeah. But we actually are better off than we were before. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That unity comes from the shared experience of one person saying, I'm going to feel what you're going to feel. Exactly. And that's exactly how this applies to race and that you can get where I'm going with Mm -hmm. that example. For the minority experience in America, it is a protest. And then you do see this anger. It's like saying, you've hurt me. Can't you feel this? Yeah. Don't you get this? 
when it's like, I don't want to see that. I don't want to feel right. that. The gospel doesn't have place for lament mm. or the gospel doesn't have place for this. Don't we just, let's get to the hope. Yeah. Mm. Let's get to the, this. Yeah. Stop being so divisive. Stop being so, right. yeah. Like, yeah. can't we just all get a lot, like yeah. wanting right. to skip over all of that and, and get straight to the end. I think that's mm-hmm. the danger of this whole colorblindness idea exactly. because it kind of puts it in a place where the people who are wanting to be colorblind, they're kind of like the guardians that's of the turning away quo. from pain. Yeah. You're, yeah. you're pain averse. And I get that. You're yes. not wanting to have conflict, yes. but that also puts you in a place where if you're trying to be colorblind, naturally, anyone who raises concerns, they're mm-hmm. all, you're in a us versus them mentality. Yeah. One person after I had a talk like this, and this was a well-intending sister in Christ. I hate using terms black and white, but I'll say it was a white sister in Christ. And she said, well, James, well, what if the husband refuses to acknowledge the pain of the wife? What would you tell her to do? I said, I would look her in the eye and say, I am sorry. This really hurts and it sucks. And I'm so sorry that right now in this place, he can't be with you. However, I do want to honor your pain that it is real and that it's there. Even on this side where the minorities find themselves, it's like, if my white brothers and sisters of Christ won't be there for me, at least I need spaces where I can be comfortable with my pain and Mm. I can acknowledge my pain. But that is not God's design, will and plan to have to feel like we have to pull away and to deal with pain. Yeah. Mm. My hope and my vision and the biggest push for me in this is, I believe the church will manifest the glory of God, particularly in America, when we can say, you know what, this is something we did collectively. We were a part of it. We might not have done it in the past, but you know what? Our forefathers and mothers, they were a part of this and we are going to be a part of healing it. We can come into the pain together. And I believe our best days will be ahead if we can do that. But if we choose not to do it, my fear is what we see happening in our churches is going to get worse Mm -hmm. and worse. And it won't be because we're talked about race. It's because we refuse to deal with the pain collectively. And if the perpetrator of that pain does not have any willingness to engage with the fact that they are a part of the problem, Mm -hmm. that's a major barrier to Mm -hmm. moving forward. That perpetration has happened and it's something that we have to deal with. We have to sit down in the room and be uncomfortable and be willing to walk through the process. We can't skip to the end without going through these steps. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think gets brought up a lot, one of the questions that's asked a lot is what are some practical things that I can do to be an ally or what, what things can I jump on board with to start making a difference? What you seem to be pointing out is not that action is not important right. because that certainly comes, but that those actions or those things that we want to do, those flow out of this shared pain, this shared experience that has to yes. come first yes. before we jump straight to yes. the, I'm going to go march in a protest or I'm going to go exactly. sign a petition or whatever. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Especially if I go back to that marriage analogy, what I've seen from some spouses that have betrayed their partner, when they take that pain in, their motivation level changes. And it's amazing to me the things that they do. Mm-hmm. What they start doing is they give to their partner what they would want mm-hmm. if they were in that same pain too. Yeah. And the other spouse is like, wow, I've never felt this level of comfort or care in our relationship before just because they took in that pain. Yeah. And so the practical to-do list, that's why I push back on it a little bit. I think people ask it from a good place, but I need you to feel this first before you can go do anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because if you're not convinced of it in and of yourself, then when I'm not around or another minority is not around, then what are you going to do when you're around your family table and the family member says something racist, or you see something happening in your office. That's like, eh, that's shady. Or in your church, if I'm not around, 
do you have something in you that will make you speak up even right. if mm-hmm. I'm not there to tell you what to do? And I think wow. there's a That's level a of point. ownership to be taken in that. This whole like to-do list question is something that I see myself asking just in a heartbeat. I'm like, what can I do to make this better? Right. But I think that there's almost some disassociation there with like all of these other white people have made a mistake. How can I, a good Whoa. white person, oh. make <laughs> up for that? How can I fix it for him? Right. Ouch. And, and that yeah. does two things for me. That removes me from being the problem. And that also sort of sets me up to go, okay, and how can I be the savior here? Wow. And again, it's not wanting to acknowledge that icky pain. Mm. Well, maybe I have benefited from something in this society set up against people of a different It's color. kind of funny in that analogy that we're talking about of marriage counseling. It's almost like seeing yourself as the counselor. Mm. I'm not the I'm, husband yeah. or the, I'm just the counselor <laughs> and I'm here to help. What can I yeah. do? Yeah. Like, yeah. as opposed to recognizing, no, I'm part of the equation. Like I'm part of the problem. Right. Wow. wow. Yeah. And you know, I want to make sure I don't want anyone to walk away after hearing this and feel like all white people are the problem. I do want you to say by my inaction, do I become a part of the current problem? Right. Mm -hmm. We've all inherited this system. So how can I be a part of the solution? Three things I tell people, if you want to really have an emotionally engaged relationship to do this conversation well, you have to be accessible to people. Are you a safe person that someone of a different race or ethnicity can reach out to? Am I accessible Mm -hmm. or do I cut myself off? Or even that goes into we live in a world in which we are still segregated. Have you lived in a world in a way where you are cut off from all people in different yeah. groups? So one is trying to create some accessibility in some way. Yeah. Even if that means, I'll say this, go attend a predominantly African-American church. Right. <laughs> that, that, James I, made a fun face. Yeah. That's why I'm laughing. I'm not laughing <laughs> so, at this point. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, Karen. No, it's okay. And I say that because like that's the shocking idea. Like yeah. right. make the move. Yeah. Try yeah. it. Be in a place where you feel like the minority for a change and see what that's like. Mm-hmm. So be accessible. But then when the conversation comes up, learn to be responsive. Don't right. go into debating facts. Like that's one thing when we did this conversation today. I appreciate we didn't just get into arguing political points and facts and <laughs> yeah. be responsive to the person and really give yourself over to taking the conversation in and then be emotionally engaged. Put your heart in it. Mm. Don't hide your heart away from it. So be accessible, responsive and emotionally engaged. So in thinking about that, we're all members of the American church or we exist in that society. From your perspective, what are some of the things that the American church and Western Christianity as a whole can start doing better. Man, start looking for theologians of different perspectives, bringing them in in the sense of into your preaching notes. When we put their quotes up, we put their pictures up because we are shaping a narrative for our congregation. As we preach through a text, we speak to the cultural elements that are already right there. Mm -hmm. Like Jesus, you want to talk about don't be divisive. He intentionally brings up the Samaritans. Mm -hmm. He was Mm -hmm. being, he was being kind of... (laughs) Right, right? Like, when he talks about evangelism and winning a whole city, he uses a Samaritan woman. Yeah. But when they say, well, who is my neighbor? He pushes the Jews and he says, let me tell you the story of the good Samaritan. Ooh, mm-hmm. no. You Jews got it wrong. <laughs> they despised the Samaritans. They were less than. Right. Yeah. They weren't pure Jews. So he was being culturally antagonistic in some ways to make a point to shake up their narrative and their view. Because the fulfillment of my whole plan is this gospel is going to go to every nation in people group. Mm -hmm. So I've got to start shaping your view to see it, that it's not all just you. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And then you have Paul come in. He takes that gospel message to the Gentiles. And then he going to what the church can do. Paul was so brave that he calls out Peter in Galatia when Peter was acting like a hypocrite and he was eating with the Gentiles until the Jews got there. Then he got up from the table (laughs) and Paul's like, no, 
Mm. Peter's a pillar of the faith, but he was being a hypocrite to the gospel. Mm. So therefore I'm going to call him out. That's the part where we need people. And I love what Kara shared that story. We need people of good intent, not to be fearful and silent. We need you to be bold and to speak up. Why not to shame people, but to say, we are pressing towards the view of the gospel that God has called us to. This is a part of it. If only to break down the echo chamber that we build up, right? That's right. Because we get so locked in these like homogenous circles where we just assume that Anson thinks exactly like I do, or Kara Mm. thinks exactly like I do. That's true. If someone is saying something that's wild and out there, it would benefit them to know there's a different perspective at this table with you. I might look like you, but you're mm-hmm. way off base in terms of what yes, I think. Because there are things that people will say around you, Isaac, that they would never say around me. Exactly. Mm. Can I piggyback off of that? Because yeah. that's where I run into a lot of fear and trouble is like, I don't even know where to start. Even with someone, my family members or you know anyone that I'm having a conversation with, how do you have that conversation in a compassionate way? What I usually do and I lean into care first mm-hmm. is I validate the fear. Because mm-hmm. we were yes. talking before we got on, the central element that keeps us from being able to do these, con- and I'll say this on both sides, to yeah. do these conversations conversations well, it's fear. Yes. I'm afraid to bring my full self forward yes. for fear of in some way you're going to reject me or invalidate me or mm-hmm. shame me. Absolutely. Yeah. And so what I usually end up doing with people, like there was one time when the talk with the statues and everything was going on and mm-hmm. I said something on Facebook and a friend contacted me because he feels like this is going to lead into the eradicating of all things that have represented him. Mm. And so it was coming from a, a fear-based place. Yeah. So I acknowledged that fear and honored that fear. But when I honored his fear, guess what he did? He slowed down. Then I shared my story with him and he was like, I'm sorry, James. I never thought about it from that yeah. perspective. But mm. that's me being a counselor. Yeah. I knew until I validated his fear, right. he was never going to be open to what right. I had yeah. to say. Now, I know some people that are minorities, but that sucks, though. I always got to make white people comfortable. Right. got to do that. Oh. Of course, they're going to oh. listen to, listen to mine. Uh, but if you want to have a good conversation, that's just all for me. If I truly want to have a conversation, I'm trying to be productive. And there are some things that I'm going to try and do. We live in such an argumentative time mm-hmm. and such a yeah. polarizing time. I think a lot of times we're seeking ways to very quickly invalidate people, right? right. right? Your view is wrong Mm -hmm. and here's why. And when we start a conversation with someone from a point of invalidating them, it's going to be hard to have a productive conversation. But what you're saying, it it very much shifts the paradigm. Now, there is some acknowledgement that needs to happen that like what you're feeling is real. Yeah. Doesn't make it right, but it's real. Empathy, right? I mean, concept. I just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, like, Isaac. There are sometimes I've had this conversation. Even when I try and validate the other person's perspective, they still don't hear me. Right, yeah. and then I do what Jesus told his disciples to do. I shake the dust off my feet and I keep on moving. It's amazing to me how I always feel particularly inequipped in these kind of conversations because I don't even know what to say. I don't have a lot of facts. I haven't done a lot of research. But when you put it in the perspective for me of I need to feel what you are feeling and Mm -hmm. validate it, it has to start there. And if you don't go there, you can't go any farther. And that's actually really helpful for me and encouraging because that's the one thing that I feel like. Okay, like I can do that, right? We got to start there. Like, all right, I can listen to your story and like, because I do know what it feels like to be on the other side of someone invalidating my emotions. Mm -hmm. I can do that. Like, so good. I don't know. That feels helpful and empowering to me. So, what does happen even after the person's acknowledged the pain and seen the pain? Mm -hmm. Usually, the person who's in the pain will go a little bit deeper with it because, like, oh, it's safe. Okay, I can share the whole thing. But you know what happens when they get their whole story out? then they're open to this perspective of even the one who did the betrayal. Mm, And I even see that in the race conversation. 
there is a place where the minority's pain does have to be acknowledged here. Mm-hmm. Then what happens is, and that's where I think I am a little bit in my journey. Mm-hmm. This is for me what God's called me to do. Mm-hmm. I can get on the white perspective of the fear, mm-hmm. the shame, and the guilt that that brings up. But part of the reason why I can do that, though, is because guess what? My whole life has been lived multicultural. Yeah. Right? I've been educated in predominantly white institutions and mm-hmm. attended predominantly white churches, but I also have been discipled and mentored in the predominantly black church. Hmm. So I've spent time in all these different areas and I can see it from both sides. And so my hope is in the church, we can have more experiences like that Hmm. where we can be able to say, like, you know, I know what it's like to be in different circles. One thing that I have seen several times, and I I actually saw this from uh, Propaganda, who is one of our hip hop artists that we play on Real FM. He was talking about how he gets asked from people all the time, what's the one thing you want white America to know? And his response to that question was, I get that that's a well-meaning question, but basically his his response was, I'm tired. Yeah. I'm tired of answering yeah. that question. <laughs> like, mm, I, yeah. I just don't want to think about you all that much because wow. I want you guys to figure it out. Right. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with that sentiment? Is there some part of you at all that says like, that's not my job? You know, there's a couple ways I think about it. The one that hit me is even when you answer and contacted me about this, I'm willing to come sit in this room and have this conversation with you all because I've seen you and I've met you and I believe you to be people of good intent. Mm. Mm. You're not just asking for entertainment. You didn't call me in here just to rebut me. I felt this sense of safety, like me sharing my words with these brothers and sisters would actually be beneficial. Mm -hmm. Mm. I will give my energy to people who are well-intending and desiring. Mm. But if you're just going to rebut me, I will stop. Mm. I've learned to do that. I will stop real quick. Mm. If you're just trying to argue a point or fight for something else, then fine, go for that. Mm. I'm using my energy for building the kingdom of God. Mm. But also I do want to see people that have their own motivation. It's not just a, I'm just sitting back and I just want to passively receive. Mm. What else in your life have you been passionate about and you pursued within your own energy? Mm -hmm. Because I have worked in some institutions institutions and churches, whatever, where the only way we're going to move forward is if I have to invoke it. And that gets tiring and I can't do that. Well, here's one more question maybe that we can end on. For people who are interested in continuing this conversation in their own circles or continuing to read other voices who are speaking into this conversation, do you have any suggestions as far as resources that people could be following to expand awareness, whether that's Books, authors, movies, other content. Wow, is there anything that you would share and say, hey, this is someone that I read or that mm-hmm. I've followed that uh, you would benefit from hearing their voice as well? Man, really good. So when you said movies, we just saw in the movie Harriet. Oh, I've heard such good things. Very good movie. I would ah, say see that. Right on. And also in January, the movie Just Mercy about the life of Brian Stevenson is going to be coming out. Yeah. Okay. Very, very good movie. But I would say read the book Just Mercy before you go see it. I really like Brian Stevenson's voice because one line he said is a nation that lynched is more than a lynching nation. Mm. A nation that enslaved is more than an enslaving nation. You are more than the worst thing you've ever done. But- you do have to deal with the things you've done yeah. if you want to be able to live up to the fullness of your glory. And I think that's the thing about America. I'm a patriot. I fought for America, but we have done these things. Yeah. And mm. to be truly who we are meant to be, we've got to acknowledge those things and deal with those things. Mm. Then I also recommend the book by Jamar Tisby, The Color of Compromise. What I think Jamar does, he is a historian. He takes and does like what I call as a therapist. And me and Jamar talked about this an attachment history of the American church. What he does is he goes through a historical timeline of ways in which the church was complicit in racism. 
And why does that matter? Because what that says is as a church, we did things or at least compromised with things that violated people that are our family. When I am a counselor, I do an attachment history with every client. I want to know how and which ways people that are close to you that you suffered hurt and harm, because that's going to shape how you see the world. In the church, we have some significant attachment wounds according to race. So it makes sense why there's so much distrust. Because we've never taken time within the church to deal with family business and heal from those wounds. 